Good morning. You may have noticed from your bulletins that this morning we are taking a break from our verse-by-verse exposition of the Epistle of James, and we do a Q&A uh, every so often in the calendar year, and it's not regularly scheduled in that it's not the same time every year, but whenever there are five Sundays in a calendar month, we take the fifth Sunday and call it our fifth Sunday Q&A. And so if you're joining with us, joining us this morning for the first time, know that this is not a typical service. We do this three or four times a year. I uh, get a chance to answer any questions that uh, people have submitted beforehand. And uh, other than that, we are studying verse by verse through the book of James, which we will continue next Sunday in a new study. We just finished a study on partiality or favoritism, and then uh, next week we will start the next section in James, uh, which talks about works and faith. Let me jump into these questions, uh, some really good questions as always. The first is this, if a Christian got pregnant or got someone pregnant out of wedlock, how should we as a church or as individual believers respond? Is it okay to congratulate that person? And do we encourage marriage if they are both believers? Well, sex outside of marriage uh, is a sin. And so basically sex with anyone besides your spouse, so whether you're single or married, sex outside of marriage is a sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's a great passage that talks about marital intimacy uh, as well as uh, extolling uh, the privileges of singleness. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2, he says this, the Apostle Paul, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. And so, not just here, but elsewhere, the Scriptures refer to sex outside of marriage as immorality. It is immoral. Sexual immorality is condemned throughout the Bible. Christ, when He came in the Gospels, heightened it so that even looking lustfully uh, at another person is a form of sexual immorality or adultery. So, we know, going back to the question, what led to that pregnancy is sin. However, the pregnancy itself is not sin. The circumstances circumstances surrounding how the pregnancy occurred does not change what the Bible says about children. Psalm 127 says they're a gift and a blessing. The Old Testament has that concept over and over again of a full quiver as a sign of strength and blessing. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. How do we respond to someone who is pregnant out of wedlock? we must keep in our response these truths in mind. The circumstances, however, will dictate a lot of how we respond. One extreme example, on the one hand, is if this is a constant thing, if they are someone like some of the celebrities we see today who seem to rejoice over having multiple children with multiple people and the moms don't seem to care, well, we don't want to condone such behavior in a believer. I mean, if it's ongoing, we have reason to question whether they're a believer anyways. On the other hand, and more likely in our circles, we do what the Bible says to do. We rejoice in the new life God has created and is forming in the womb, but we confront the sin. Psalm 139, 13 through 15 is still true. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. We don't punish the child because of the sins of the parents. We have a faithful member of our church who part of her testimony was that she walked away from the Lord from the Lord and from the church, and it was because when she got pregnant as a young teenager, she was shunned and condemned by the church when she needed them the most. She needed their support, them to confront her sin, of course, 
but to support her as a teenage mother. In terms of responding how the Bible calls us to, we need to love, we need to forgive, especially if the immorality directly affects you. We need to encourage and support, confronting the sin, coming alongside them so it doesn't happen again, and then supporting them. That is biblical fellowship. Forgiveness, love, grace, but also confrontation of sin. Especially in terms of support, especially if this is a situation like my friend where the father is not a believer, the father has left, is out of the picture, we need to support these people. You understand that biblically confronting sin is not shaming, it is not judging, it is not ostracizing. We need to avoid those things so that the girl and her family feels that we, we need to not do those things in such a way that she feels like she can no longer be part of the church, that she's no longer welcome. Now, the Bible does not directly address if those two people should get married if they're both Christians. What the Bible is very clear about is that there is an obligation on both the father and the mother to raise and provide for that child. The Bible is very clear on that. Um, adoption especially by a Christian family, is also an option. That being said, if both father and mother are believers, I would, as a pastor, encourage them to be married, assuming, of course, that they're both uh, unmarried at the time. However, we need to keep in mind in that situation that the most important thing is both of those individuals' relationship with Christ. And the reason I bring that up is that just getting married does not bring forgiveness for their sin. So we can't just say, oh, you know, bypass looking to the Lord for forgiveness and saying, you need to fix this, you need to get married, as if that makes everything okay. We still need to make sure that they are right with the Lord, and which will also make sure that um, the, the circumstances push them to get married, perhaps when they weren't planning to, um, that their marriage is a healthy and biblical one, okay? Question number two. Would you be, kind of along the same lines, I guess, would you be willing to comment on the idea of uh, single adult believers adopting? And this actually came up uh, in one of our small group discussions after I taught on James chapter 1, verse 27, which says this, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And um, some of you weren't here, but that word visit doesn't just mean like go visit an orphanage, go visit people, like, you know, stop by. But the visit uh, idea in the New Testament has the idea of ministering to, providing for in any way possible. Obviously, um, Widows and orphans were in much more desperate straits in biblical times than they are in America today. There's similar situations in other countries, but in our context, they are uh, more tend to be more taken care of uh, with social services and the foster care system and things like that. Um, something to keep in mind when we talk about orphans in modern day America: uh, we don't have orphanages; we have foster care. Foster children are orphans. Again, the Bible does not address this issue specifically, but there are some principles that can really help us. First is what I just read in James chapter 1 and verse 27. Taking care of orphans does not always involve adoption, but that is an option. That is something we should consider, especially if we're talking about our local church uh, and there's children in our church who lose their parents uh, either through death or imprisonment or whatever it may be, uh, rather than letting them go into the foster care system, we need to consider uh, adopting them. Now, when you talk about adoption, you're obviously talking about family, right? A child needs to be adopted because they don't have a family that they are part of. A child has, for all intents and purposes, lost their biological parents and is now is not part of a family. And if family is the issue, then we must look at what God establishes in His Word as a healthy family, which involves a biologically male parent 
and a biologically female parent, and yes, you should be incredibly bothered that I have to phrase it that way so my words are not twisted these days, but with those principles in mind, it would be best for a family with two parents, mother and father, to adopt a child. Uh, we see that the, the family uh, of husband and wife, God creates from the very beginning and throughout the Scripture. We see that as God's design for the building blocks of society. And so, you know, when you hear... Uh, conservatives in, during the election cycle saying, yeah, it's the breakdown of the family. That's why we have all these problems. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? That has to do with everything. That has to do with everything, okay? Gender confusion, uh, crimes, everything ultimately comes down to when we break down the family, when parents don't have authority when mom and dad don't fulfill their roles, it breaks down and it trickles down into everything, right? They don't have respect for their parents. They're not going to have respect for teachers, for police, for authority, all of that. Uh, but going back to the uh, question, um, knowing that that is God's design, that would be best uh, for two married adults to adopt a child. It's not just, by the way, a general principle, but also an admonition for those of us here who are married uh, to consider adoption whether we have biological children or not. That's what's best. Would it be wrong for a single Christian adult to adopt a child? No. Ideally, it wouldn't be best for the child, but realistically, it could be best depending on the circumstances. For example, you hear a lot of adoptions these days, especially among celebrities that involve children in third world countries that are adopted because they would otherwise star die of starvation or be recruited into some sort of militia. In that case, if a single Christian is sacrificing for the sake of the child, for God's glory, that would be great. However, if a single Christian is seeking personal fulfillment, they want to somehow complete their life. They never were able to get married, and so they say, well, I'm going to adopt a child because I just want to feel fulfilled. That's not great, especially considering it's a selfish motivation. I think I shared, I might have shared this with you guys when I preached back in the end of James chapter 1, or maybe I shared it in a small group. Listen carefully because I don't fully agree with this. But I often think of my friend years ago who I saw at a wedding. I had not seen her since college. And she was, and I believe still is, working at our state's capital. She was at the time working with a senator who was putting together California adoption laws. And so because of that, she saw the dark side of the foster care system she saw all the problems and the need for children uh, to be adopted in California and across the country. And, and I was asking her about this, and this is just like as we're, we're waiting to walk into the reception, just casual conversation. And she says this, solid believer. She said, knowing what I know, I would rather a gay couple adopt these children than they remain in the system. Now, I don't know if I fully agree with her there. But there is a lesson to be learned there, especially from what she said next. She said, of course I would prefer Christians to adopt, but the church is not doing it. And so that's a, a great and powerful admonition uh, for us uh, in regards to adoption. Question number three. How should a Christian view cosmetic plastic surgery and would the same principles apply to getting braces to straighten teeth? This really comes down to the reason for wanting plastic surgery. Uh, you're all aware probably that much cosmetic surgery is considered medically necessary. Skin grafts for burn victims or reconstructive surgery after a bad accident or a mastectomy, that is considered cosmetic surgery. Uh, I would guess that that's not the category of plastic surgery that this person is asking about. Um, by the way, 
for those of you who it matters to, uh, they every year uh, put a list of the top plastic surgeons in America. And no surprise, most of them are based in Beverly Hills. Uh, and making the top of the list every single year is a long-standing member of John MacArthur's church. So take that as you will. Um, so let's talk about the other type of plastic surgery, which obviously, scientifically speaking, is it's all plastic surgery. Again, the Bible does not directly address this issue, so we must look at other issues in Scripture to guide us to figure out the answer. And the first major question someone would want to ask themselves as a believer if they are uh, thinking of undergoing such surgery is, why? Why do you want to do this? Although not always, because there could be a million different reasons, we know that the usual answer although they may not phrase it this way, has to do with vanity. And we know right off the bat that biblically that is not good, especially as it draws in a secondary biblical issue, which is a huge issue in the New Testament, is how do you handle your finances? So if you are pursuing something that the Lord condemns and spending thousands of dollars on it, then we kind of have your answer right there. So if it is to look more attractive according to the world standards, then there's probably a better solution than surgery. What would those solutions be? Well, there could be many, but here are some. If you're single, dating godly men or women that are focused on the right things. And don't, you don't feel pressure to look different physically. Also, becoming the right type of person by valua valuing godliness over worldly standards if you are single and looking for someone to date. Yes, of course, you need to be attracted to the person you marry, but you understand what I'm saying here. Especially for the men, but women too, this also means being careful what you listen to and what you look at, what standards you place in your head. Another solution would be growing in your contentment with God's sovereignty and how He made you which you understand how He made you, how you formed you in the womb, how you looked as a baby, how you look now. God's sovereignty and ordaining how you look includes how your body will change and age over time. And in some ways, all of this brings us back to our study of partiality in James chapter 2, which you remember the, the sin, the problem was judging someone by external standards. In that case, the rich or the poor, how they dressed. In this case, of course, it would be judging yourself by worldly standards. Although if someone is willing to go so far as to have plastic surgery, then there is a very good chance that they are judging others as well in regards to physical looks. As far as braces, that would be similar in both respects, in that it can be for looks, but it can also be medically necessary to avoid, avoid pain and trouble in the future. Uh, my middle son, those you've been around know him uh, as if he didn't have enough medical issues already, uh, is in this category. They already want him to have braces and pull out his teeth because uh, he doesn't have room for his adult teeth, uh, which are, are coming in, and so they're just going to jam into each other, causing a lot of pain and, and possibly more issues. And so, uh, so same principles do apply. Someone may well say then, well, braces uh, and having straight teeth, uh, not having an overbite or an underbite just for looks is uh, kind of the norm in our society. We know it's not the norm in other societies, um, in other countries. So they could go so far as saying, well, if that's the case, what about makeup? What about combing your hair in the morning? So, first of all, I think we can all agree that combing your hair or putting on a little bit of makeup is a far cry from going under the knife, okay? It's a very different thing. There is something that John Piper calls undistracting attractiveness, and that this is what he calls it, and it helps us find a balance between idolizing our bodies and neglecting them. Now, I don't think he does, but I connect it to the call and example of the Apostle Paul 
to be all things to all people in 1 Corinthians 9 for the sake of testimony and evangelism. In other words, things like combing your hair or dressing appropriately so as not to be a distraction from the truth of Scripture. Because our ultimate goal is to glorify God, and our ultimate goal when it comes to society is evangelism and to be a good testimony, and that we don't want to distract from that, right? The uh, John the Baptist style of preaching doesn't work today. It doesn't work in our society. No one will want to talk to you. It doesn't attract people to, as, a, as a representative of Jesus Christ. So, undistracting attractiveness. So, understand whatever you think falls in line with that. Um, beyond that, our focus must be the adornment of the heart, which it talks about in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. I'm going to read that for you. It says, your adornment must not be merely external, such as braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. In other words, no matter what the issue is, ultimately your number one priority should be your heart before the Lord. And I would give you a side note. One of the reasons the Proverbs 31 woman is the Proverbs 31 woman, one of the reasons she's praised is because she dresses well. She dresses in a way that is a, uh, makes herself attractive for her husband. Which, on another side note, things like working out and dieting are important. Not for vanity's sake, but firstly, so that we have, we're not sluggish, so we have enough energy to serve the Lord and to practice our spiritual disciplines. But secondly, to honor and serve our spouses, to be attractive to them. To sum up, when it comes to cosmetic surgery, we need to be sure we are not idolizing looks, also known as vanity. Um, a fear of man could be an issue here as well. And we are to be good stewards of the money the Lord has given us. Question number four. Back when you preached on James chapter 1, 12 through 15, you said that because of God's nature, He cannot be tempted. Could you expand on this and how this attribute would relate with Jesus? Is this an attribute or the nature of only God the Father, but not Jesus? More specifically, was Jesus really tempted in the wilderness, or could Jesus also not really be tempted like God the Father? This is a great question. Because you have James 1.13, which says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted by evil. But then you have John, uh, Matthew chapter four, verse one, which says Jesus was led up to, in, excuse me, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you have that scene, that scene where he was uh, tempted by the devil uh, in many ways, and then he just responds by quoting Scripture. So, a lot of this comes down to semantics, but semantics in the Greek. So I'll try to say this. Uh, slowly and clearly because you could, I know it can be confusing. The Greek word in James 1.13 that is translated cannot be tempted, God cannot be tempted, is actually an adjective in the Greek. And that phrase, which is one word in the Greek, cannot be tempted, is only used once in the New Testament there in James 1.13. So to say that God cannot be tempted by evil is to describe him, that's what an adjective is, and it means that he is untemptable in the sense that he has no desire for evil. He is immune to the assaults of evil. He has no desire for it. The word used in Matthew 4, speaking of the devil tempting Jesus with certain promises that are external to Jesus, it says nothing about a desire within Christ for those evils, to, to take what the devil was promising, to actually commit sin. The fact that there was someone was tempting him outside of him 
does not say anything about his ability or inability to commit sin. So again, it's largely semantics, and it might be helped with this silly illustration. You have a friend who's dieting. I didn't plan this. I'm talking about dieting a lot. You have a friend who's on a diet. This friend also happens to hate coffee. So you say to another friend, you say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tempt him to break his diet. You think that's funny, a little prank. I'm going to tempt him to break his diet by dangling this creamy, sweet iced coffee in front of him. That is you tempting him. But that same other friend says, oh, you're not going to tempt him. He hates coffee. He has no desire for it. So what you have there is the devil dangling the iced coffee of sin before Christ, but he hates the coffee of sin, so he remains untemptable by it. By the way, I like coffee. This is not, don't take this too far. It's fine. So from Satan's point of view, if you can put it that way, he was tempting Jesus to sin. From Jesus' point of view, he was disinterested in anything Satan had to offer. He also understood this as a test which is the other meaning of being tempted. And so that's kind of the picture there, right? Oh, I'm going to tempt him, but he doesn't like whatever you're offering, so he's not being actually tempted. He's untemptable, okay? Um, By the way, this also allows Jesus to be a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in all things, Hebrews 4.15, something that we praise God for. Okay, question number five. Can someone be a believer but not have the Holy Spirit? Context being Acts chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. How does a believer receive the Holy Spirit? Why does Acts record laying on of hands and or a physical sign of people receiving the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, but we do not see that today in our church? Does this form of receiving the Holy Spirit still occur in the broader Christian church, uh, such as other denominations or other cultures around the world? So before we go to Acts chapter 8, let me lay down a foundation here of what we're talking about. Romans, actually, could you turn there? Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. I'm going to give you two passages here. Romans 8, 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, speaking to Christians. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and here it is, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Then turn ahead to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says this. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And there in Ephesians 1, the word sealed uh, refers to uh, an official document uh, or the authority of the document writer. So you've probably seen this. People kind of do this today on their wedding invitations for fun. But back then, right, they would drip some wax to to close off a document. And a lot of times a king or someone powerful had that signet ring with a little engraved and he would push it in. And then the receiver of that letter would say, oh, yeah, that's the king's seal there. It's been unopened. I know this is from him. So that's the same idea. So rather than a wax seal to authenticate the authority of that letter, we have the Holy Spirit. So not only do these two passages tell us that all Christians have the Holy Spirit, but also that they receive Him at the moment of salvation. Because if you are in Him, you have the Holy Spirit. This is a New Testament reality. So this also uh, answers the question as to how a believer receives the Holy Spirit. They receive the Holy Spirit by being saved. And at that moment, they receive the Holy Spirit. As for Acts chapter 8, 
What you have to understand is that all of Acts chapter 8 is a transition period as the church was being established, which means Christianity was being established. What you have in Christ's coming is the fulfillment, as you know, of everything that the Old Testament is pointing to. In other words, everything the Jews were expecting in their prophecies and the fulfillment of God's plan and the salvation of them, the Jewish people. Their understanding then would be that the Messiah was coming for the nation of Israel, for the Jews. He was the Jewish Messiah. However, we know that Jesus came to save not just Jews, but everyone. It doesn't matter what ethnicity or group you are part of. And we know very well that the Jews didn't like that. Today, they still don't like that. They didn't like it, especially when it came to Gentiles, which is just anyone who's not a Jew. But back then, they especially disliked the inclusion of Samaritans. Now, Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile, and they were completely shunned and ostracized by the Jews. The Jews were disgusted by what they would call the half-breeds, right, these mixed people. And what you see in Acts chapter 8 is a unique situation where the gospel is beginning to spread outside of the Jewish community, because you do see that even with the Apostle Paul's ministry as well as Jesus' ministry, they did start with the Jews and then expanded to the non-Jews, okay? And so at this point, the gospel is spreading outside of the Jewish community. The church is including people who are not Jews. And so the Lord in His sovereignty and plan waited in the, until the apostles were present before He sent the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. Why? So there could be no question that the Samaritans were to be part of God's salvation plan because the apostles were there and affirmed it and authenticated it. The laying on of hands by the apostles signaled the authority and confirmation of the inclusion of Samaritans in God's plan of redemption. You see this a second time where there were people who were baptized, but then the Holy Spirit didn't come later until Peter was there preaching in Acts chapter 10, and this was with the other non-Jewish group, the Gentiles. So you see two instances in where God wanted to wait till the apostles were there to authenticate and verify and send the Holy Spirit. Both of these instances further indicated that God wanted Gentiles and Samaritans in the church, and this is so cool uh, to think about, by replicating in Acts 8 and Acts 10 in some way what happened at Pentecost with the Jews. So see, the Samaritans get their own little Pentecost and the Gentiles get their own where we're laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit comes, there's some speaking in tongues and miracles. See, everyone is supposed to be part of the family of God. The reason we don't do this in the church today uh, is because the unique situation there is no longer necessary. The canon of Scripture is complete he has made very clear that all are included in God's people, right? During the time of Acts, there was no New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. The New Testament was being written. Um, and so we, we see that God clearly wanted to include all people. And so now we have these other passages we've seen that the moment of salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit uh, in the epistles, right? Later on, as the church was more established, there's no need for laying on of hands for the Holy Spirit. There's no call for speaking of, in tongues to authenticate it. Are there other cultures or denominations that do that? Uh, yes, there are. Um, but I would argue that it's not necessary according to the Scriptures. Question number six. Does God harden people's hearts? If He does, why is it necessary when by nature people will ultimately tend towards a hardened heart state 
anyway. Does God harden people's hearts? Um, yes. The clearest example that people like to bring up, uh, more talking about God's sovereignty, is, of course, Pharaoh's heart, which even before Moses went and said, let my people go, he told Moses, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's not going to let the people go. But what this is talking about, I believe, this question is hardening people towards the gospel, towards salvation, and why is that necessary if in their total depravity they're going to take the, the broad road anywhere, anyway, so to speak, right? Um, we have Romans 1, and in verse 24 of Romans 1, it says that God gives the unrepentant, those who see the evidence of God in creation and in the fact that they have a morality in their consciences, says He gives them over to these things. That is hardening their hearts. What's very important to understand in that passage is he, God is essentially saying, this is what you want, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you over to the things that you desire, which involves all the things of the world and total depravity. So this isn't someone who's seeking God and he says, no, be quiet, I'm cardening your heart, okay? So you've got to be very clear about that. So in other words, God is condemning sinful people, and that condemnation involves giving them over to do and be what they have chosen. Now, within election and God's sovereignty, there's also personal responsibility. How that works out logically doesn't, it's illogical in our minds, but it works out in God's minds. And again, in Romans 1, there's shown to be clear evidence of a creator God that can lead someone to pursue knowledge of Him or to reject that, which is really what Romans 1 is talking about, those who reject it, okay? To be clear, someone can't look at the mountains and go, oh yeah, Virgin Mary, sinless baby. No, right? They know that there is a God um, and they don't say, well, I want to find out who this God is and make myself right with him, okay? So, I, on a side note, that uh, philosophical question, is there such thing as an atheist? According to Romans 1, no, there isn't. There may be people who really suppress it and declare themselves atheists, but really and truly, there is not, okay? Um, in fact, I would argue the fact that they call themselves atheists and pursue atheism so much just proves that they're trying to suppress something. Um, so there's election, but there's also personal responsibility. And uh, with constant rejection in their personal responsibility in response to what the Lord has revealed, there's a final hardening that keeps them from being able to seek and search for God. So there is a difference in degree, you could say, between, between someone's natural depraved state and someone who is ordained by God specifically to no longer be able to seek Him. Okay, question number seven. Is church membership biblical? Uh, I'm very thankful for this question uh, because I, and I say this every time, I think, the, how, do I, how do I do this? Because I answer this question because there are people who say, I don't know if I should become a member. I don't see it in the Bible. I don't think it's biblical. And the only time I really address this question is in membership class, so for people who are already planning to become members. Um, so I'm glad this question was asked. Church membership can mean two things. First, it means just being part of a local church. And second, going through some sort of official membership process, let's call that formal membership. For example, our process is actually pretty simple compared, compared to other like-minded churches, which their process spans several weeks, if not months. For us, it's an application, an interview, a class, and then a right hand of fellowship after service on Sunday. I suspect this question is about the second type of church membership, a formal membership, but I want to briefly explain the first type because it will help you understand why we do the second. The first is being part of a local church, just coming, right? So if you are a Christian and you're here this morning, you're part of this church, okay? Maybe this is your first time, you're not really part of the church, but you, you get what I'm saying, right? 
There are only two times that the Lord Jesus Christ uses the word church in the Gospel of Matthew. The first is in Matthew 16 in that well-known scene where Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. That's Matthew 16 and verse 18. It is there he first uses that word and thus establishes the universal church or the church spelled with a capital C. So that just means all Christians everywhere are part of the universal church. The next time he uses the word is in Matthew 18 in the passage regarding confronting sin and what we call church discipline, where he says that if the one in sin does not respond to individual and then group confrontation, he says, tell it to the church. This would, in context, be referring to the local church. How do you tell it to the universal church? If you all know of 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 a Twitter group or something where every Christian in the world is involved with, please let me know. But we all, obviously, this is the local church, whatever church you're a part of, right? Um, right off the bat, in Matthew 18, he actually gives the local church quite a bit of authority. In fact, if you read Matthew 18, he is essentially giving the local church, every local church, the authority to declare on earth who does and who doesn't belong to the kingdom of God through church discipline. That's pretty powerful stuff. Now, we could be wrong. Obviously, he has the final say, but the authority is pretty powerful. Now, as the New Testament progresses, the authority and centrality of the local church becomes very clear. The church government, uh, specifically of having elders uh, and deacons, Christian ministry, everything is within the context flowing from the local church. The idea of being a Christian and not becoming a part of the local church is foreign to the Scriptures. So probably not for you, but anyone listening to this recording or later on on the radio, if you're just listening online and not part of a local church, what you, you're practicing a Christianity that is outside of the Scriptures, that doesn't exist. Lone Ranger Christianity, you've maybe heard that term. The reality is, for the early church, this was not a problem. Churches were localized and few, so if you lived in Ephesus, you became part of the Ephesian church, Right? Um, and because there was such hostility towards Christianity, you wouldn't skip church. You'd be like, I need to be with my people. I need to find comfort there. I need to worship with them together, right? There are no books. There are no published Bibles. There are no internet. There are no sermons. There are no live streaming, right? They needed those people so they could be around people like, hey, listen, you know, the the centurions are coming for us, that kind of thing, right? That you could see how there'd be a greater comfort in coming to church when that's all they had and they were heavily persecuted. Fast forward to 2,000 years and a few thousand miles west to America in 2023, you have Christianity being commonplace. You have Bibles being sold at secular bookstores. It is not unusual to have several churches within the same city in the same street, just drive down El Camino in any city uh, in the Bay Area. You have dozens of cities within larger metropolises, right? Can't count how many churches are in New York City or even in any given borough or even uh, San Francisco. And so, added to that, in our culture, and yes, within the church, you have a growing sense of self-entitlement and independence that pushes away the desire for accountability and fellowship. You have this growing focus on, on money and keeping up with the Joneses. So that distracts people or pushes people away from wanting to sacrifice time and, and money to serve the church. You add to all of this a plethora of theologies, and you can see how a formal process of church membership has arisen in many churches to make sure people believe what we believe, are committed, and aren't just going to come for six months, two years, and then disappear because I just said something or someone was rude or the guest speaker dressed in jeans or whatever it is, right? And you laugh, but you also laugh because you know friends who have left churches for silly reasons like this. 
And so we want to be gracious and loving, but then we sit here as a church family and as leadership wondering, is this guy coming back? Am I going to offend them by saying, how are you doing? Or am I going to offend them by not checking in on them? And you just don't know what's going on because so many people are so come and go and you think they're being considerate because they were exposed to COVID and you're like, they're actually members of another church now. And so you see how this membership process arises because of all that we have going on, especially in the American church today. And what this process of church membership is, at least for our church and other like-minded, can I say conservative churches, is a public affirmation of submission to the authority of the local church and agreement with their doctrine. So what you have is a way to have someone agree to what they should already agree to because they're a Christian, that I'm going to find a local church, I'm going to stay there, I'm going to raise my kids there, and I'm going to submit to the leadership, and I'm going to submit to the doctrine. But too often, again, you have people leaving churches for the smallest of reasons or coming in to serve and teach while not agreeing with the church's doctrinal statement. Formal church membership, although not foolproof, helps alleviate some of these issues. It's kind of the same idea where it's arisen because of social issues. It's the same idea where you could take someone to court for violating a business agreement that was legally binding through a handshake. Whereas today, what is legally binding is signing several pages of legal documents in front of a witness. This is what our society, including Christians, have become. We are very flaky. We are untrustworthy. So for the Christian, in the sense of submitting to local church leadership and sticking around, so we have formal membership. Is it a sin to not go through formal membership? No, it is not. Do we want you here if you don't go through formal membership? Absolutely. Is it biblical? Let me put it this way. Formal membership is kind of like giving money to the church. It is not explicitly commanded in the New Testament, but the principles and scriptures there are pretty clear that you should probably be doing it. On a side note, One of the dangers of actually having formal membership is that there are those who think they can't serve unless they go through the membership process. You can serve and you should serve because you're a Christian. There are others on the other side of the spectrum who think they don't have to serve or give to the church until they become members. I know people who don't become members because they don't want to serve and they don't want to give to the church. That's wrong too because you're a Christian. So with that, I will tell you that, of course, I still counsel non-members. I still meet with non-members. The the elders, we regularly pray for non-members. I think uh, probably a third of our list of the people we pray through specifically by name are non-members. And only because I get this question all the time, yes, non-members can be church disciplined. Okay? I know I'm over time. I'm over time every time I do a Q&A. I'm going to answer this next question very quickly. John chapter 9, verses 37 through 41. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Those who were with him from the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, But now that you maintain, we see, your sin remains. Is Jesus saying it's better to be blind and have no sin? Please help explain Jesus' logic here. This is extra confusing because that whole chapter is about Jesus physically healing a physically blind person. People had a problem with that. There's all this discussion. And then you get this passage, which switches from physical blindness to spiritual blindness, still confusing. Being blind in this passage refers to spiritual darkness. Seeing refers to spiritual light or righteousness. 
all unbelievers are in the darkness. They are spiritually blind. But not all unbelievers know they are in the darkness. Those that do recognize it, those that do know that they are spiritually blind, will then obviously seek the light, meaning they will see uh, and recognize the darkness of their sin and seek salvation for that sin. The Pharisees, like everyone else, were in the darkness. However, they thought they were in the light. They thought they were righteous. So they didn't see the need to turn to Jesus for salvation. Therefore, they remained in their sin because they didn't seek forgiveness of their sins because they didn't think they had any sins. When Jesus says it's better be, to be blind, He is saying it is better to recognize your spiritual darkness or blindness so that you will in turn recognize and pursue your need for Christ. In other words, being blind is good not because the spiritually blind are sinless, because the spiritually blind recognize the darkness they are in and will pursue Christ and have their sins dealt with. So that's what he is saying there. And he also says elsewhere in the gospel several times that he purposely speaks in parables and is confusing so that only those who the Lord wants to know and truly understand will truly understand. Okay? Uh, great questions. Uh, please continue to submit those. You can do those online or in the offering box. Even if you have a question now, even though our next Q&A is not for a few months, uh, you could go ahead and do that. Um, I will say this. Um, because of different, I don't want to say issues, but because some of the questions uh, that have been submitted in the past uh, are deeply personal uh, and would actually warrant not a public Q&A, but perhaps a one-on-one conversation with either myself or Elder or one of our counselors or, or whatever, because it's clear that there's some things that they need help with. Um, I uh, will not answer questions moving forward unless your name is on the question, okay? So just a rule to protect you guys uh, and I think to protect uh, myself as well. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, your guidance and your clarity and your word. Thank you uh, for a church family that is inquisitive and desires to know the truth of Scripture and de desires to excel still more, not only in their understanding of your word, but also in their worship because of their understanding of your word. Use us the rest of this day and this coming week for your glory, Lord. 